briefly on what that means. So uh, I'm fortunate that people haven't quite done the same presentation as mine, so I get to go right from the um, kind of basic physical picture of things, which is that we have a terawatt challenge. And uh, I kind of dis, let me, I think, is there any way to get the slides higher? I don't, it has to do with the setting of that. Uh, That's really yeah. annoying. It is, yes. Okay, well anyway, um, so how do I get back to the slideshow? From current slide up here. Yeah, so we, we could shrink we could shrink everything, but unfortunately this computer I use a Mac and this is a PC, so it's all over. It's all over. Um, people in the back can like you know inch their heads up if they ever can't see this stuff. Anyway, you should be in the front. Um, so uh, there we just have a you know different types of things and how they fall on the scale of one watt, which is this LED flashlight, through a microwave, which is a kilowatt, a plane. A small plane, which is a megawatt, a nuclear power plant, which is a giga, uh, nuclear one reactor, or an entire coal power plant, which is on the order of one gigawatt. Uh, the biggest project in the world, the Three Gorges Dam, is 23 gigawatts. And then um, the world, which consumes about uh, on the order of 10 terawatts, actually 15 today. Okay, so these are very big numbers, um, and they're getting bigger. Okay, and the uh, pie chart of where our energy is coming from is uh, still very much fossil fuels. And, that, and, and if you break it down by use, it follows that almost all of the oil is for transportation type uses. Um, I, I believe almost all of the coal is for electricity. And then there's some heating and electricity and other stuff in there as well. Okay, now the Problem. There's a couple of different problems. We had a mention of uh, resource limitations by uh, uh, Mr. Hess uh, earlier, um, and another of the issues was also kind of mentioned is this whole issue of carbon and um, what it's going to do to our climate. Now we just have a graph here where we show um, what the business as usual scenario will do in terms of bringing us above 750 ppm. Um, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if we continue business as usual in the mix of fuels that we're using. Um, but that's the expected amount of energy that we'll require. So there are different ways of tackling this. Certainly if we get energy efficiency, then we can bring that number down. But still, even with that, it's going to be quite hard to uh, reach any of the stabilization goals that the IPCC or other people who've studied this have desired. Um, so for example, 350 is a, is a really good goal. 450 is above what we have right now. Right now we have um, about 390 today ppm, and we've already got a significant amount of, a detectable amount of uh, warming going on. And the pre-industrial uh, level was 270. So, so some of these goals, basically we're, we're going to deal with a planet that is warmer. We're going to deal with a planet that has a, has a changed climate. The question is, how much of that do we uh, dare to deal with, right? So, okay. And uh, climate change, well, um, you know, there are a lot of different effects. I think most of you are familiar with them. Uh, we can have a discussion if anyone wants to dispute that sort of thing. But I, I kind of see it in, in, you know, two very fundamental aspects. Um, 
uh, in ways that we're very deeply called uh, by, by, by our faith in Christ to, to um, work on, one of which is loving other people and loving in particular the least among us, which are always disproportionately affected by calamities, um, disproportionately affected uh, in you know, economic downturns, disproportionately affected in uh, environmental disasters and so forth and so on. And then also fundamentally we have some uh, duty to care for this planet that we're on uh, uh, just for its very own sake and of course for future generations. So there's a quote from John Houghton uh, who was first co-chair of the IPCC down below. Well anyway, I'll read it out just for the people in the back. Christians and other religious people believe that we've been put on the earth to look after it. Creation is not just important to us. We believe it is also important to God and that the rest of creation has an importance of its own. All right. So um, as uh, Mr. Hess mentioned earlier, we're running out of um, cheap oil. And uh, certainly this is a concern. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I, I'm not quite as doomsday as him. I, I, I think uh, certainly, um, probably, even if we didn't do anything, um, rich countries would survive with a lower standard of living, and it w would again be, you know, poor people as usual who are the ones who starve, um, because there's plenty of farmland, at least in the U.S., and you can make farming a more um, labor-intensive activity like it used to be, and you'd probably be okay here, and in Canada, certainly where I'm from, which is going to benefit from global warming, incidentally, probably. <coughs> anyway. But what you, what you really don't want to do, at least as far as caring for the environment, um, is you don't want to all of a sudden switch to uh, using coal, which we have a lot of, actually. That's probably the fossil fuel that we have probably more than 10 times the amount of coal as we have oil. And so you could presume making plants, which are South Africa did during apartheid, Germany did during World War II, to uh, transform coal into a liquid fuel. Actually, um, it's you know, not that hard to do, um, but that would be a disaster in terms of uh, climate change. So then we have the question, well, so where are we going to get our carbon-free energy from? Um, also, well, we mentioned nu nuclear is, you know, it's around, it's... Um, at some level, it's part of the solution, but uh, to get 10 terawatts of it, which we seem to need with kind of the growing population and uh, the growing wealth actually is even more important than growing population. Um, because, you know, if we all lived like um, people live, if we use the same amount of energy as people still currently uh, use in China or in India, we wouldn't be in a problem yet. Okay? So, so really, it's a, it's a multiplying factor, this wealth thing. And we do want people to kind of develop and get, um, at least the poor people, to get wealthier. Maybe we should think about our wealth situation. Actually, we should really think about that um, if we remember the parable of uh, the rich young ruler. But anyway, that's another thing. So, um, but nuclear has this whole safety concern. It has a proliferation concern. It, we, we want to not be building one every week. Yeah, that, that would be probably impossible anyway. Uh, coal with sequestration, well, maybe, but um, there's a real risk as far as the uh, possibility of leaks, and this is really not an entirely tested technology. Um, and with hydroelectric, which is also there, we've pretty much capped out what we can do. 
Um, for some reason, okay, well, okay, that wasn't supposed to be an animation. That was supposed to all appear at once. But um, we also have geothermal, but just probably not enough of it. Um, we have biomass, but again, food is an issue. Uh, people talk about using marginal land for uh, biomass, but in the end, I think some, at least some of the analysis that I've seen really show that that is also, in effect, marginal for making uh, biomass for um, that sort of thing, for fuels. And uh, wind is good. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, there, it's, it's a, going to be an important part of the solution, but um, there are limits as to how much you can get out of it, uh, just from the size of the resource. And that's uh, you know a significant chunk, five to, I mean, with offshore, I think you could probably get to 10 terawatts, which is quite considerable. But it's not going to be the only thing, just like I don't think solar should be the only thing. Um, the beauty of solar is that, of course, the resource is much larger than uh, any other renewable resource, with the uh, possible exception of nuclear fusion, whenever we figure that out. So um, this is the availability of the solar resource. And the theoretical amount that we have is, um, I've heard, what, 165,000? I mean, the number shifts around depending on how you quite count it. But the order of magnitude is about 10,000 times what we currently use in civilization. And if you have just these squares on the map uh, with uh, current, actually worse than current performance uh, solar cells, about 10% cells, you could, um, you could power the world for basically everything we do. Now, then there becomes a question, well, you know, the world doesn't really need electricity only. It needs transportation fuels and so forth and so on. And I'll leave that for the battery people to figure out. So progress in photovoltaics, um, I'll just go through and talk about technologies, efficiency, uh, cost, the installed PV, and uh, challenges. So the standard technology today, um, and up to today, pretty much, has been crystalline silicon in either uh, monocrystalline silicon, which is the one on the left, or multi-crystalline silicon, which is the one on the right. And uh, this is about 80% of the market today. Um, and there, there's still ways that this can be improved. So I'm going to speak a little bit from uh, the research side. Uh, you'll notice that monocrystalline silicon ap appears significantly darker than multi. And the reason is that uh, the different crystal grain orientations in multicrystalline silicon um, mean that it's uh, more difficult for the usual, the people texture these cells to lower the reflectivity of the cells. And if you know, uh, just I'm sure you all can figure it out, uh, that essentially the amount, of soul, uh, the amount of energy that you can get from a cell depends on a bunch of different things. It certainly depends on um, just the uh, various electrical properties of the cell. But optically, of course, you need to get the light in in order to uh, get uh, the electron hole pairs generated and to get that energy out, right? So uh, the reflectivity of cells, a, a cell should look essentially black. That's the perfect color. Um, and it should look black not only to you, but to, I don't know, moths or something that can see in the infrared. Okay? So that's what that should look like. So, so the ones on the left are better than the ones on the right. And, the, you know, we, of course, I think people are still working on these very mature technologies to get, to pump out the remaining bits of efficiency that you can get. Um, so the monocrystalline cells are the best ones in the world are working above 20%, I think. 23, 24%. So the 
the, the in industry people are working to get those uh, research efficiencies uh, really out there. And industry has recently just demonstrated the first, I believe, 20% module, which is quite quite good. And then multi is going to catch up to that hopefully. And then in terms of emerging technologies, uh, people talk about different things like thin film technologies over on the top left, including uh, CIGS, which stands for a compound, which is a copper, indium, gallium, and uh, selenium, uh, and cadmium telluride cells, and also thin silicon cells. Now, some of the, there are some issues with uh, resource avail availability for terawatt scale uh, power from, from some of those, from CIGS and from CADTEL. Um, just for the fact that those elements are not nearly as abundant as um, silicon. So, so people are concerned about that. But I think the work that's been done on thin film uh, will kind of help advance the field in general and uh, may be applicable to other materials as they come up, like uh, various thin silicon materials. Uh, that uh, with, with that kind of research, you'll get a knowledge base which will, with, which will help really advance things. Uh, people also work on concentrating photovoltaics, where you use a very high efficiency cell, typically based on group three and group five materials like uh, gallium. Well, people do uh, multi-junction solar cells, where different cells in that uh, different cells in the junction capture different parts of the spectrum. Uh, the ones that capture the bluest light, the highest energy light first, and then so forth and so on, the lower energy light from there on out. And those are uh, germanium, gallium arsenide, uh, aluminum. Well, they're different materials. I don't work on that field. But, but those materials are expensive, so you typically use concentrating optics uh, in order to minimize the amount of material that you use. But concentrating PV um, and, of course, the thermal solar concentrating power, which is not photovoltaic, is a pretty good option, actually, in very high insulation areas like uh, desert areas. Now, you also have uh, just some emerging technologies at the bottom, which I'll just briefly talk about. Now, the thin film stuff now is already about 20% of the market. Um, this emerging stuff isn't really any percent of the solar market. Um, the organics, which are uh, coming out there, they're very, very cheap, relatively low efficiency, though. Um, and then maybe some crazy ideas, which you can't see because of the podium, but involving quantum dots and other nanostructured or uh, quantum-confined materials. So here's a graph of efficiencies, which you may or may not be able to figure out, but um, because of its, the text is kind of small, but I'll just point out that the purple line corresponds to these multi-junction cells on these group three, group five materials that are, uh, and they reach record efficiencies of uh, 40%, and the expectation is that at some point uh, we may break the 50% barrier. Um, and then with crystal silicon, which is the uh, next group of blue lines, uh, we basically have in the 20, 20 plus percent range now. And uh, below that, we have thin film technologies in the mid-teens and uh, uh, organic PV, which is uh, still under 10%. So that's where we're sitting right now. This is a graph from, from NREL. Uh, in terms of cost per watt, that's dropping over time, and we're on a learning curve. And if if anyone here comes from or knows uh, uh, to a deep extent or even a shallow extent the semiconductor industry, semiconductor industry was on a learning curve for a long time uh, 
for transistors, right? Um, and the inverse of that is the Moore's law for the number of transistors per square area. But this is, you know, so so this shows you basically how the cost is coming down on a log uh, log plot, and uh, we're actually right now PV modules. Um, I think are hovering now around a dollar per watt, uh, at least from uh, uh, what is this first solar with their technology, CADTEL technology. So what does it mean to be at that price? Um, well, being at that price uh, means different things depending on where you're located. Um, it depends on what the annual solar flux uh, is at your place. So it's better if you're in California than if you're in Germany or northern Canada. Um, and uh, the price of electricity matters. So for a homeowner to decide or for a commercial uh, like a supermarket that wants to put it on their roof or something like that, you just look at something similar to this graph and you say, well, is it uh, economical for us today to do it? And um, it's already economic for in, in some regions, not counting subsidies even. Um, and in some other regions, it will become economic uh, in 10 years' time or so. Okay? Um, so what does installed PV look like? Well, I guess most of you are pretty aware of the rooftop installations. And um, this is what a PV power plant looks like. They, they're not very big yet, the P PV power plants. Uh, I don't think there's a single one that's above 100 megawatts. But um, then again, there's no point for it because in some sense this is supposed to be a fairly distributed technology. There's no reason to make a gigawatt all in one place um, unless you were sending it in the Sahara, Sahara Desert or something like that. Okay, um, and so I, I do want to say that PV is already extremely competitive uh, without subsidies for off-grid applications because off-grid applications are just very expensive. I mean, you're running a diesel generator or something like that. You, you really don't want to be doing that. And it's starting to get there for on-grid applications. Not, not as close as wind, of course. Wind is pretty much there. Um, and to look at PV in a different perspective, uh, in a kind of development perspective, um, I'd I just like to mention that PV has made a, well, small, but some impact in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, so the PV panels are typically used in conjunction with batteries, of course, because you need to store the power um, to power kind of off-grid rural applications. These include, um, it, it's interesting, when I, so, so everyone thinks that, okay, well, people would um, use it for reading at night, and that's very true, and for pumping water and you know, things that we think of all the time in development. Of course, people actually uh, are much more excited to use them for mobile phones and uh, to watch TV and everything like that. But, you know, all of these things are, at some level, good things. I mean, people uh, derive enjoyment and have a kind of higher standard of living and get to know what's going on outside. So the, these things are all good. Um, but uh, ultimately, it's economically viable because of the high cost of uh, electricity in those places and the lack of a, uh, a good grid. Um, and uh, one final point is that ultimately, of course, uh, typically the people who uh, install solar, um, other than people who kind of get it given to them by, by charity, are still people who are wealthier than average. But that's the way it goes. <clears throat> 
So, how am I doing on time? Well, okay. Okay, anyway, so um, I, I do want to mention that there are some challenges remaining, and I'm sure a number of you have thought about these challenges too, uh, for terawatt scale uh, photovoltaics. So one question is ultimately scalability, and this will have a, this will depend a lot on um, cost and also on the manufacturing. Like, will we have the required materials to produce um, something equivalent to the road surface area of the world of solar panels? Okay, so that that is actually the right order of magnitude. Road surface area of the world. If we can produce that, we can really power the world. Um, Okay, well, that, these are interesting questions. Uh, there are, of course, questions about reliability and the effect on the electric grid, which were raised earlier for wind. Um, I do want to point out that at up to 30%, something like 20 to 30% um, penetrate, market penetration, that's not such a big deal. And the, the reason, actually, is that there is about a 20% variation um, during the 24-hour cycle of electricity usage. And that's just from the fact that people are either awake or they're sleeping. Um, and we, right now we deal with that by having um, basically gas-fired power or other types of power that cycle on and off pretty easily. And we'll, have this, we'll be able to do the same thing um, in the future, to, whether maybe gas is replaced by some biomass. I don't know. But, but there, apparently there's plenty of gas, so maybe, maybe it's perfectly OK. Um, but of course, when PV grows beyond that, then we'll have to really think about those issues. Uh, but I, I really feel like this energy storage issue is really also related to the big issue facing the transportation sector, which is, are we going to have things that will store energy and be compact and store large amounts of energy? Um, and, and that really relates to this battery technology question, um, batteries or fuel cells or something like that, something that stores a lot of energy and can take it in and cycle it in and out. And I, I just wish there was a battery expert here who was going to present. I don't think there is. Um, but, but that is, I think, the big challenge. So I, I see photovoltaics and then wind and then these other, all these renewable technologies is playing a huge role in providing the energy that we'll need. On the flip side of things, you really need ways of storing and moving things around. Um, I just one, two more slides. Okay, so uh, is there too much hype about PV? Well, maybe there is, um, but it's certainly part of the solution. It's not a magic bullet. Again, I mean, inventing good technologies is not an excuse to ignore the fact that we kind of have been wealthy for a long time. We really like being wealthy, and at some, to some extent, we're kind of guilty of being uh, over consumers. So can we can we change that? And when we talk about saving the world, um, I mean, ultimately, we know where salvation comes from. But I do want to say that our part in bringing, um, so, so to speak, the kingdom of God into the earth has a lot to do with stewardship and conservation and not being so focused on wealth, and then thinking about holistic solutions. And then finally, after that, once we have these things kind of in mind, then we can really work on our technological innovation. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. What's your name? You take it. Uh, man in the purple shirt.
architecture itself. What are the losses in the uh, field when dust collects over time? And what are the efficiency losses when you have to convert DC stored or generated energy into AC for the grid? Yeah, those are good questions. I actually don't know the answers to them that well because I, I basically work on basic research on solar cells rather than um, uh, kind of lifetime studies. But um, I guess that uh, the, the way to handle that is that um, for power plant scale developments, you would send someone around to wash the panels, first of all. And uh, I believe that a number of people are working on inverter technologies, and I think they're above like 90% efficiency. Sorry? Yeah, so that's not too bad. Uh, man in the back? also very positive on solar thermal. Solar thermal can have more of energy storage built into it because you can heat up something and store it uh, without much uh, heat loss, actually, if you have good thermal insulation. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like um, photovoltaics can be scaled to uh, gig gigawatts and terawatts in a faster manner, in an easier manner than um, solar thermal, just from the it's solar thermal is more plant by plant, right? You build a plant, um, it, you have a central plant that runs like a the same kind of um, uh, car, not Carnot, but uh, a, a turbine cycle, steam turbine cycle that a coal plant. So you you have that fixed central infrastructure. So yeah, exactly. But, but anyway, I mean, efficiency-wise, they're actually somewhat comparable, but, and cost-wise right now. All right. Let me just one comment about uh, people are talking about fusion uh, and energy. And uh, of course, it hasn't occurred yet. I mean, uh, so it's just a very minute amount, so very, very low percentage. If you take a look at all the technologies that have converged into what we see now as a way of generating the conditions for that. I, I really worry about people even having a, a shadow of hope for that because it, I, I can't see it having anything better than maybe 5% or 10% efficiency as a system for generating power. 
and they're talking about again about the only the only way they are generated heat. I don't know how you're going to get uh, a, a, uh, enough rivers in the world to dissipate the heat where you only got 95 percent of the energy that you're generating with that heat fusion process goes into heat. The rest is useful energy. Yeah. Uh, you're you're going to heat all the rivers in the world. Okay, well. But nobody's doing any research on that. How are you going to How are you going to get a more efficient way of using that extremely high? I mean, maybe it's MHD processes or something, but. I don't see any place where anybody works that they talk about. Yeah, well, I wish there was a, uh, I wish there was a nuclear physicist here, but sorry. Okay. A fellow in the orange shirt. I have two good questions, slightly related. Um, one is, what do you think the asymptote is of these energy efficiencies that you're getting out of the little takes? And number two, what do you need from the rest of science, whatever you would consider not your own field, to get there? Um, okay, well, so there are fundamental limits, and uh, basically I feel like we are approaching them. So, for example, for a single junction cell, like in silicon, the limit is around 33%. That's not what the limit is for silicon itself because the band gap isn't ideal, so it's slightly lower than that, you know, 28%, something like that. We're very close. Um, the question really isn't one of efficiency, it's one of system cost. And that's what needs to come down if that's low enough and the materials are earth abundant, then you can make it happen. Um, so I think uh, in terms of what research from outside of the solar cell, I mean, um, cheap materials for you know, sticking these things down. Uh, uh, I mean, lines. transmission lines, thank you. Um, all the materials that go into a module, inverters. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I think this has mainly been figured out already, but sealing the modules and encapsulants and all of that, a lot of different things outside of the technology of the cell itself. The cell itself is maybe about a third of the total cost or something like that. One more question, and then we all got to go to lunch. Yeah. Are, are there significant um, pollution issues from having an area of one percent of the land surface being covered by voltaic Um I think the pollution issues will come more into play in how these cells are manufactured. That would be where I would assume that most pollution goes on. Uh, I think um, certainly there are a num I mean Semiconductor manufacturing has mainly shifted to uh, East Asian countries because of the lower environmental standards, and there are examples, unfortunately, of where that's been really tragic and really bad. Um, so similar concerns would be for, I mean, this is essentially a semiconductor industry at larger scale. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Let's all go for lunch.